Hey, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us online today to worship the Lord together. My name is Dan Halleck. I'm the lead pastor here. If I don't know you, thank you for, for being here. And uh, if I do know you, thank you for being here, too. Um, it is not news to any of you that our community and our country is experiencing a turbulent and divided time right now. One of the reasons that it is extra stressful is because there are a whole number of different stressful things happening all at the same time. There is a, there's social unrest about the unjust treatment of black people. There are groups hijacking many peaceful riots to try to stir up violence and destruction and more hate speech. Uh, there is the cumulative stress that many of us are experiencing uh, from being quarantined for several months. There's stress for individuals and churches as we work through how to obey our authorities in a God-honoring way. There's our crippled economy that has created many financial stresses for institutions and for individuals. And, and on top of all that, there's a presidential race happening at the same time, which of course always brings with it a lot of drama. Our world is, is really being tested right now. Uh, our nation is being tested. And most importantly, in my opinion, our churches are being tested. What are we truly made of? as a church. That's what you find out at times like these. Uh, what, uh, what truly drives us as a church? What, what is the cause for which God created our local churches? What are those causes for which God did not create the church, which might derail the church? What is it that unites our church and holds us up even when the world around us is falling apart? Or are churches so tied up to the world around us that if the world falls apart, then churches are going to go down with the world? Through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, God tells his followers that if churches are to stay strong, if they're to stay steady and able to withstand the storms of the world around us, then churches must be built with and united by one thing alone. Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Okay, If a, if a church builds itself upon anything other than Jesus Christ and his word, then it will fall apart. Churches will fall apart. Politics will tear us apart. Quarantines will tear us apart. Disagreements about something as, as, as simple as carpet color will tear us apart. We are so feeble in our flesh. If we build our church on the flesh, we will not stand strong together through the storms around us. And so our strength, our bond of peace, our reason for love is and must always be Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. Jesus' word guides us 
And Jesus' spirit indwells us as we do life together. And so if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, God, that guides us in times like these. We thank you, Jesus, um, for being our bond of peace and for giving us peace that only God can give us. We ask that you would um, use our time today to sanctify us, God. If there are sins that we are committing knowingly or unknowingly, that we would be convicted of those by your Holy Spirit and repent, turn away from those. And um, God, that you would use this text today to encourage and build up our church, that you would um, help us now, Lord, to find, um, to remember that our hope is in you, our faith is in you, and not in ourselves or in the world around us. We, uh, we love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Amen. Well, last Sunday we focused on verses 11 to 16, and this morning we're going to focus on verses 17 to 22. And as I said last week, uh, the cross of Christ is at the center of this passage. Uh, the, the, the cross of Christ is at the center of our reconciliation with God, and it's at the center of our reconciliation with one another. Um, there is no true lasting reconciliation with God or with one another unless we are united by the cross of Christ. 
Jesus unites us by creating in himself one new man that exists to glorify God in this world and forever in heaven. Jesus Christ, we read, he is our peace. And to give us his peace, verse 17 says that he came and he preached peace to Gentiles who were spiritually and culturally far off from him. And he also preached to Jews who were culturally near to him, but many were still spiritually far off from him. And so what does this verse 17 then tell us about God? Well, it tells us again that God is the initiator of our peace, the preacher of our peace, and the purchaser of our peace. God is. God. God is the initiator. He is the preacher. He is the purchaser of our peace. Verse 17 says that God came to us, right? He came to us even when we were far away from him. Jesus laid down his rights to his heavenly throne. He came to this world that he created. He added to himself human flesh. He was born into our mess in order to die for us. Jesus came to us first. Jesus initiated reconciliation with us. Praise God. Praise God for that. Because we would never have initiated it with him. And when Jesus was on earth, it says that Jesus preached peace to us. Jesus was not silent. He, he used his words to preach, to proclaim. And he also used his actions to preach and proclaim peace to the world. Jesus told us and showed us how to love God and how to one an, uh, love one another. Uh, Jesus told us how to be reconciled to God through him. And, and Jesus not only preached peace, but he actually purchased peace for us by dying on the cross for us. His, his physical body was torn down so that he might build us up into one new body, one new man that exists for his glory. The, the temple of his body was torn down so that he might build us up into one new temple that exists for his glory. Now in verse 18, Paul explains the amazing result of this peace that God initiated and preached and purchased for us. Verse 18 says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what is it that we Jews and Gentiles both have now in Christ? <laughs> access to the Father. Access to God the Father. We have a forever backstage pass to God's throne room. Okay? The throne room where he rules and radiates his glory and radiates his justice and righteousness forever. We have a backstage pass to him there. It's incredible. Now, think about this. Why does the holy, infinite God of the universe care about 
us being at peace? Why does he care about our peace? Why does he care about you and your peace? Why does God care about us being able to access him? Because he loves us. He loves you. And, and he, is expresses, uh, he expresses his love to us by being full of grace and mercy and by showing much patience and compassion toward us. Christian, God the Son, Jesus Christ, ushers you into God the Father's throne room, not because he needs you, but because you need him desperately. He ushers you in because he loves you and you need God desperately. What love is this? This is incredible. And verse 18 says that our access to God is a Trinitarian access. So each of the three persons of the Trinity is mentioned in this one verse. It says, through God the Son who died for us and purchased access for us, we are indwelt and sealed and confirmed by God the Holy Spirit through faith. And this is the Holy Spirit who then grants us access to God the Father. So, so the holy, majestic Lord of all of Scripture and all of history and all of the universe, he is ours now through Jesus Christ. We enter God's throne room now. We, we enter with reverence and fear and trembling because he is so awesome. And yet at the same time, we do not approach him with a fear of his condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you, Lord. And so, so we enter his presence spiritually in the heavenlies with, with a spirit of awe of God and a spirit of eternal gratitude toward God and a spirit of eternal worship because of who God is and because of what he has done for us in Christ. God came to us while we were still a long way off because he wants us with him. He loves us. He wants us to have his peace and to worship him and to rest safely in his protective arms. God welcomes us into his presence in order to enjoy him, to be delighted, to have fullness of joy, and to serve him and to become like him, to become more holy like he is holy. So Christians, what do we do with the access God has given us to himself? What do we do with this access practically? Do we, do we value the access God has given us to himself? Is this good news to us? Do, do we understand what a wonderful joy it is to be able to come to the Father and sit in his presence and rest in his grace and his power? How often do we come into the throne room to talk to him, and to confess our sin to him, and to thank him for forgiving us, and 
to worship him, to read his word with him, to sing to him, and to work for his glory with him at the forefront of our mind always. See, God, God did not buy you a backstage pass, Christian, so that you would only come to him two Sundays a month, or so that you would be limited and uh, have to fill a quota of coming to him one day a week, one Sunday you know, of the week, or, or even one time of the day. See, with his blood, Jesus bought for you permanent, peaceful access to God so that you can now abide with him. Abide. To abide means to stay in God's presence or to reside or live in God's presence. God wants you to come to him, to abide with him, to stay with him in your heart and mind and spirit all day long. Wow. This is what Jesus prayed at, at the Last Supper. In John 15, 4-5, Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Christian, your access to the Father is not restricted. Okay? It's not restricted by your sinful past or by the color of your skin or by the country in which you live or by the language that you speak. We who trust in Jesus have all been purchased by Jesus. We've all been formed into the new man together, and we all have access in one spirit to the same Father. Praise God. This is a reconciling God. That is who he is. Now, because we are one new man in Christ together, who has forever access to God, we read in today's passage three more descriptions of our new identity together. This passage says that we are fellow citizens of God's nation, his kingdom. We are members of God's household. And we are a holy temple in the Lord. So let's talk about each one of those. First, in Christ, we are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. In Christ, we are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. Verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, Paul tells the Gentile Christians specifically, You are no longer, Christian, what you were. Your ethnicity and your culture no longer make you a stranger or alien to God or separate you from God. So a stranger, let's, a stranger and an alien, let's talk about those two words. A stranger is someone who lives outside of a nation who's totally separate from that nation. Okay? An alien is someone who lives within a nation but who does not belong to that nation and has 
no rights within that nation. So here God tells all Christians, but Gentile Christians specifically, you are no longer strangers to me and to my kingdom. And you are no longer aliens in my kingdom. You are now a fellow citizen of my kingdom. And if you remember, citizenship in the ancient Roman world was a huge deal. And people would give much to have citizenship. And, and what we're talking about here is this isn't an earthly citizenship. This is being a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so what that means is that you, Christian, have all the spiritual rights and blessings that come with citizenship in the kingdom of Jesus, including all-time access to God himself. Wow. God says, you are no longer a sinner in my eyes. And he uses this word, you are a saint because I have given you the righteousness of my son, Jesus. That's what makes you a saint. Not because of your works, but because of the work of Christ applied to you by the grace of God. You are a citizen and saint in my kingdom because I love you, is what Jesus says. And as Christians and local churches on earth, we must work hard to live out this reality among us. This, this reality that there are no second-class citizens among the people of God. You know, I've walked into church buildings and church fellowships before where my first instinct was to, to feel and to tell myself, I do not belong here. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. I, I've walked into fellowships before where I felt, man, I'm not cool enough to be part of this community. Uh, I'm not important enough to talk to these people. I'm not social enough to be accepted here. Now, now some of those thoughts are surely from, from my own flesh and uh, lies from the devil, possibly. And, and as much as it's up to me as an individual when I'm thinking those thoughts, I need to ask God to help me recognize those lies and rebuke those in the name of Christ and claim the truth of my identity in Christ. Um, there, there's no doubt, though, that churches have historically faced many issues related to this. Um, churches have faced many issues historically related to different types of favoritism, different types of segregation, uh, be that racial segregation, uh, financial, socioeconomic segregation, age segregation, and so on. So as a church family, in, in all of the different environments in which we gather, be that in community groups or Bible studies or small groups or children or youth ministry uh, or just Sunday worship, we must proactively think about how to value and include the entire body of Christ and how to warmly welcome other individuals the way that Jesus has so warmly welcomed us. And it's not enough to think about it. We have to act 
we have to uh, take actions that demonstrate that we value one another and that we genuinely care about one another. So, so as much as it's up to us, you know, we, we don't want um, anyone, uh, as much as it's up to us, to walk into our church building and feel like they are walking back into their high school cafeteria, which was split up by different cliques and you know, had unwritten strict guidelines about where you can, where you cannot sit. You know, uh, we, we don't want people walking into our Bible studies and our community groups feeling like they're the odd man out. Instead, we need to be, as individuals, the, the first one to try to get over to them and, and talk to them and welcome them and, and get to know them and learn more about them. And also, if, if ever you are part of a group of people in the church or in a Christian community that, it, that is not open to other Christians or a group that does not welcome other people in, then you are showing favoritism and you are treating other Christians specifically like they are second-class Christians by your actions. That is not the kind of culture uh, we want in our church family or for any church. Um, every time we gather with other Christians. You've got to remember this, that we, we enter into fellowship together not because we have made ourselves citizens of God's kingdom, but because God made us citizens of the kingdom. He's the one who invites us to the party, not vice versa. And, and so in our fellowship together, we lay down the divisions of this world and we share the peace of Christ together. We share the citizenship of Christ together because it says in him we are fellow citizens of God's nation by his grace. Thank you, Lord. Second, uh, in Christ we are members of God's household. In Christ we are members of God's household. Verse 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So in other words, in Christ, you are part of the family of God. Like Paul already wrote in Ephesians 1, 4-6, in love, he, God, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons of through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So together in Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ now. We are family. We are the family of God who will live together with him in glory for eternity. And as members of God's family, which this family, God's family, which will outlast every earthly family, uh, we all play a valuable part in the family of God. We all use our gifts to serve the family because God has given each of us in him gifts to use. We, we all seek to help one another by the Spirit to live in an honorable way in order to honor the name of our Father. We all give to the family of God financially and with our, our time and with our energy. 
We all make sacrifices for the family. We, we don't always do what we want to do, right? We, we all seek the good of the family. We, we all seek the peace of the family and the unity of the family. And we all live in gratitude to our triune God for what he's done for us. We, we all live in gratitude to God the Father for sending his son to die to bring us into his family. The Father gave up his son so that we could be sons and daughters in Christ. We all live in gratitude to God the Son, Jesus, for coming to us and for preaching peace to us and for purchasing our family membership for us, which we could never purchase on our own. We all live in gratitude to God the Holy Spirit for making us born again through faith in the gospel and for sealing us as children of God, as forever family members of the household of God. We thank God that, that because of God, we can now call the Father, Abba, Father, because that is who he is now to us relationally. Wow. In Christ, we are members of God's household. Third, together in Christ, we are a holy temple in the Lord. Ephesians 2, 20-22 says that we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The idea of a temple and the cultural significance of a temple is not as familiar to most of us this morning as it was to Paul's original audience in Ephesus. Uh, in the city of Ephesus, the temple of Artemis was the most grandiose feature of the whole city. It was the pride of the city. In fact, people traveled from all over the world to worship the pagan goddess Artemis at her temple. And as we read in the book of Acts, the whole economy of Ephesus revolved around the temple of Artemis. So it was of extreme importance to the uh, citizens of Ephesus. And just like the Gentiles, the Jews also took great pride in their temple in Jerusalem. Uh, their temple was grandiose and beautiful too. And the, the Jewish temple in Ju Jerusalem was a popular place for the citizens of Jerusalem to congregate. It was a source of financial income for Jerusalem. And for the Jews, it was where they came to God and worshipped him. And so whether you were a Jew or whether you were a Gentile, temples were very important places in the ancient world, spiritually, socially, and culturally. And now here, verses 20 to 22 say that the grandest temples built by human hands are nothing compared to the temple that God is building us to be in Christ, church. Those temples can't compare with what God is building his church to be. And these verses describe three crucial parts of the temple that God is building. He describes the foundation, the cornerstone, 
and the other stones. So let's talk about each of those briefly. What is our foundation? What is the foundation of the temple that God is building? Verse 20 says that our foundation is the apostles and the prophets. So through the apostles and the prophets, God gave us his perfect word of truth, the Bible, scripture. And so our foundation is the word of God. It is the truth of God. The, the church is not, a, not built upon the opinions of men or the words of humans. The, the church is not built upon the ever-changing political ideologies of men or the naturalistic hypotheses of men or the wisdom of men or the works of men. God's church is built upon the foundation of the truth of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the prophets. And what is then the cornerstone of our temple? Christ Jesus himself. <laughs> he is the one in whom our whole structure grows as his temple. Jesus is the one upon whom our entire reconciled interconnectedness depends. It all depends on him. And so um, verses 20 to 21 say, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I am not a builder. Some of you are. And in my understanding is that in construction terminology, the cornerstone is the first stone that you lay when you're building a structure out of brick or stone. And the quality of the cornerstone and the placement of the cornerstone is extremely important because the cornerstone determines the alignment and the position of the entire building. So if the cornerstone's off, then the building's off. Church, this is great news, that Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, because Jesus Christ is not off. Jesus Christ is right on. He is the guide, the measure, the standard of truth. And so when, when Jesus was speaking to crowds in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in Matthew 21, 42 to 44, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the cornerstone, of course, Jesus is talking about is himself. Throughout scripture, the cornerstone was a word used to describe the coming Jewish Messiah. And after Jesus ascended to heaven, when the apostles Peter and John were arrested for healing a man in this same temple Jesus was speaking at. They said in Acts 4, 10 to 12, 
Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus Christ is the true cornerstone of his church. And Jesus Christ must be the cornerstone of our local churches on earth. Jesus, his, his work, his word, his gospel, uh, his personhood, his spirit. Jesus sets our direction. And isn't this exactly who you want to be? Uh, who, the, is, it, is it Jesus, the cornerstone you want to have as the cornerstone of your church and of your life? I mean, isn't this great news for us that our, our cornerstone is not the president? He's not a governor. He's not politicians. He's not scientists. He's not doctors. He's not college instructors. He's not principals. He's not pastors. Our cornerstone is the creator of all of those people to whom all of those people are accountable and to whom all those people must look in order to determine what is true and right and good. Wow, Jesus is our cornerstone, church. And so if we are out of alignment with Jesus, if we're out of alignment with his heart and with his commands, then what does that make us? It makes us crooked. We're out of alignment. And our crookedness, if we are crooked, not only has a negative impact on us, but then it also affects and misaligns and makes crooked all the other stones that are looking to us and aligning themselves to us. So it's of the utmost importance that the church and we as individuals in the church make Jesus the cornerstone because he is he 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 is and so we need to work hard to make sure we in our minds and hearts and actions keep him as our cornerstone so the cornerstone of our salvation the cornerstone of our fellowship together is and must always be jesus christ alone and in addition to the foundation and in addition to the cornerstone there are, of course, the rest of the stones that form the temple. Each of us who trust in Jesus Christ is a living stone in the temple that God is building for his glory. Living stones. And this is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2, 4-6. He writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So in Christ... Each of us is a valuable stone, a living stone. Why are we living? Because 
That is what God has made us through the gospel. He has made us alive with his resurrection power. And so each of us in Christ is a living stone which God has chosen to use for the construction of his temple for his glory. What a privilege. Wow. And so the question then is, for each of us, as, as one living stone in God's temple, what is your individual responsibility to the rest of the temple, the rest of the living stones in this temple that God is building? Several responsibilities to, to help hold one another up, to encourage one another, to build one another up with words and actions, and not to tear one another down with words and actions, to love one another, to forgive one another, to be reconciled to one another, to go preach the gospel so that God makes more living stones that he'll use to build his temple, to strengthen your own walk with God by abiding in him and staying in his word and praying to him throughout the day and confessing your sin and repenting from sin every day by the power of his spirit. Your responsibility is, is to strengthen your own personal relationship with God so that you can pour out the benefits of your own intimacy with Christ, your own strength with Christ, in order to make his temple stronger and more holy and more beautiful. Who are the other living stones around you that need to be mentored in the faith and encouraged? We must look out for one another as parts of the temple. We must be mindful of one another. We must seek to put ourselves in the shoes of one another. We must seek to build up God's church into a stronger and more beautiful temple by his power and for his awesome glory. And may I say that this does not just apply to our gatherings at church. It applies to our relationships, even when we're not gathered. And it starts in our homes. It starts, all these things start in our homes, holding one another up, encouraging one another with our words, building one another up, loving, forgiving, being reconciled to one another. Dads, we have to model this for our families. We, we, we have to set the tone of grace and holiness for our family. That doesn't mean we have to be varsity Christians. That's not what that means because I, I don't know if anybody's a varsity Christian. I think we're all just sinners invited to the table of God because of his grace. And we're, as long as we can say, you know what, I, I, I want to pursue the Lord today and do it the best of my ability what he's asking me to do by his power and when I mess up I'm going to rest in his grace and I want to lead me and my family to the Lord um, I think that pleases the Lord these are the kind of spiritual sacrifices it's talking about and obviously not all of your households have fathers in them and and so children respect your mothers in the Lord and Mothers, we pray for you who are leading your households alone and fathers who are leading your households alone. And, and um, we just, uh, 
We are in this together, right? That's why we're a temple. We need to build one another up. It starts in our homes. It continues into our church family. Um, now, in this last part of this, the, the passage, we want to ask this question. Why? Why is God building this temple? What is this temple of his church used for? And the answer is in the last verse, Ephesians 2, 22. It says, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow, a dwelling place for God. So God is building us together as individual living stones in order to be one beautiful temple in which he dwells in a special way when we are his temple together. And so it's just like John, or excuse me, Jesus said in John 15, just as we abide in Christ, so also Christ will abide in us. What, a, what an astounding truth this is, and what an amazing truth this must have been for the original hearers to hear, that God does not live in temples built by people. No matter how awesome those temples were, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' people now become the temple of God. It's amazing. Commentator Kent Hughes writes, the Gentiles were excluded from the Jerusalem temple by a wall and by signs threatening death. But now in Christ, they actually form the wall of the new temple, the temple of God. Wow. So let me repeat this. If you trust in Jesus, God does not stiff arm you to stay away from him. In fact, even if, you, if you're not trusting in Jesus, Jesus is calling you to come to him. But I'm speaking specifically to Christians about your relationship with him. God does not stiff arm us to stay away from him. God gladly gives us access to himself and calls us, beckons us to come to him for our sake and for his glory. And because of the Spirit of Christ, who has made you born again through faith in the gospel, you are not who you used to be, Christian. You are a citizen of God's kingdom now, with all the blessing and rights that come with that citizenship. You are a member of God's household now. You are a son or daughter of God alongside your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And together, Christians, you are a holy temple being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. Today's passage says that God comes to his people. God preaches peace to his people. God purchases citizenship and family membership for his people. God makes his people alive as living stones who trust in him. 
And God dwells in peace inside his new temple. Praise God. Thank you, God, for doing this for us. So if you don't know the Lord today, I exhort you, turn to the Lord Jesus, trust in him, trust in him, and be saved. And for those of us who are trusting in Jesus already, uh, may we be mindful about how we can contribute with love to the well-being of the rest of the body, the rest of the temple of God. May we build up this temple of which we are a part. May we not tear it down. May we strengthen our own relationships with God so that we can better help the other stones around us. And may we share the good news of Jesus with the world around us so that many more people might receive eternal life. And so God will have many more beautiful living stones with which to build the glorious temple that he deserves for the eternal worship of his name. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, this time and we thank you for this word, God. We uh, uh, thank you for making us into your temple, God. We thank you that we are living stones that you have made alive with your breath. God, we ask that you would help us to invest in our own walk with you, that we would take um, advantage of the access that we have to you to come into your presence and to know you, Lord, and to grow more closely to you. God, we ask that you would use us to go to the world around us, to preach peace to the world around us so that you might make many more people alive in Christ, that many more stones would be brought back from the dead and be made living in you, that they might be used in your temple to bring you glory with the rest of your temple forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.